Well, hey, good morning. Hey, it's great to see you guys here this morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Salem. Uh, we just finished uh, coming out this last week in a six-week series uh, called What If? And, uh, and so, you know, I don't know if, you're, if you feel this, but I kind of feel like for a season we've been talking a little bit more about kind of how we respond to God and, you know, just felt like a little bit more of a doing thing. And so for five weeks as we kind of prep ourselves and lead up into, into the fall, um, what we want to do is just take five, five weeks to talk about prayer um, and just to, uh, and to think about what it's like to be before the Lord. And so this morning we're going to start that. It's going to be kind of, a, kind of an umbrella picture. It's an invitation uh, to prayer as Jesus teaches his disciples. So we won't get to go into all the nitty-gritty things of that, which will come in some of the weeks uh, to come. But uh, in, in light of this series on prayer, some of you guys might remember uh, many, many weeks ago, I think at the beginning of the summer, I don't remember where this was, but I challenged uh, our church uh, to, uh, to find Dale Helving's car and put a Cub sticker on it. Um, and uh, yesterday, or two days ago, Brady pointed out on my own car this. And guys, guys, I just want to be clear. The challenge was to put a Cub sticker on Dale's car, not a twin sticker on my car, okay? Right? So here's the deal. To start prayer, uh, this, ser- this series on prayer, we're, gonna, we're just going to pray the entire morning until somebody confesses. Okay? So dear Jesus, please... Move quickly. <laughs> That's great, right? Um, you know, but in all seriousness, when I think about prayer uh, this week, I had a meeting, um, some meetings lined up on Thursday, and I uh, was supposed to go to the coffee shop uh, and meet some people. And, um, and so I had texted Brady and I said, Hey, can we move our meeting to the coffee shop? Because I've got some meetings that follow there. And he said, Sure. So he came and, and we started talking about ministry. And as whenever we talk about ministry, we're always trying to connect on life and, you know, how's, how are things going with you and, you know, just in, in general and family, specifically, other things. And, uh, and, you know, he could just sense some things in my life. There's just like maybe a, a, a tiredness that day, uh, a defeatedness or whatever that was. And, and, uh, and so we started this conversation and he he's just keeps asking all these questions. And uh, in that moment, you know, as he ends, he just, you know, and he's so good at this. He knows me well. He just said, hey, Seth, can I just, can I just pray for you right now? And, uh, and I'm like, yeah. And so what he did is he just, he put his hand on my shoulder in the middle of this coffee shop, all these people around, and he just prayed for me. And can I just tell you how sweet of a moment that was, right? It just spoke to my heart as God used him in a powerful, powerful way. And I would say this, one, I think that prayer is one of the most simplest uh, and most powerful things uh, that you and I could ever learn to practice in the Christian faith. In fact, more than anything, more than anything, I would, I would encourage you and push you towards, uh, towards prayer. In fact, I would love to build a culture of prayer in that sense that, that when you see someone and you have a conversation with them, whatever it was, just stop and end with prayer, right? Because there's not a single moment in your life that can't be bathed in prayer. And so it was so fundamental to me that so intrinsically helpful for me in that moment is he used, God used Brady just to speak to me. Um, and so I just want to, we want to talk, we want to start this idea about prayer. When we think about prayer, sometimes there's this confusion, right? And so what would you say? Like, well, what does the Bible say about prayer? Well, there's this moment in scripture in Luke chapter 11 where uh, Jesus is praying uh, and the disciples actually ask him to teach them how to pray. And so that's where we're going to be this morning is in Luke chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn and, and join with me. 
And just want to set the context here. Um, and he's going to start by really kind of talking about the promises of God and kind of look at the big picture of prayer here. Um, it says this in verse 1. It says, Now Jesus was praying uh, in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, and so one of the things I just I love about even just in this opening verse, it would be so easy to, to skim past and miss, uh, is just, the, again, the rhythm of Jesus. Like, what's Jesus doing? Jesus is praying. He's doing it in a certain place. Um, He's either within eye shot uh, of the disciples or he's doing it right in front of them. Either way, the disciples see him doing it. They know that he's doing it. And in that moment, there's this powerful question as they come to their Lord and Savior to say, Lord, would you teach us how to do that? And there's this posture of humility, right? This sense that they are drawn to Jesus. And I love this about the brokenness of humanity. Like if we were to be with Jesus in person, like so much of our lives is just, is, is, is grounded in kind of broken behaviors. And yet if you were to spend time with Jesus, like how many people are just drawn to Jesus because of the goodness of his person, right? And so here is Jesus is praying uh, and, uh, and his disciples see it and, and they come and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, let's just take a step back and let's think big picture because I think there's some confusion around the word prayer. There's maybe some misinterpretation. So what, what, what is prayer? Like, how would you define it? Um, maybe prayer is talking to God. Uh, maybe prayer uh, is asking God for something. Maybe, maybe it's as bold as demanding. Um, maybe it's something like uh, aligning. Maybe it's wishful thinking. Maybe it's just the space where we go to just to kind of lay out, this is the way that we kind of hope and dream that life could be like. You know, like there's a lot of different versions, right, of prayer. Maybe it's any combination of those uh, for you as we think about, as we think about prayer. Uh, and it made me think of this story. I was reading this in a book this week, um, and it's probably a fictional, you know, illustrative story, but it talks about this. It's says that there was a man who spent $10,000 on a bird. Uh, and it's a bird, this special bird that he could, that the bird could speak like a certain word or maybe it's like hello or something like that uh, in like 30 different languages. And he spent $10,000 on this bird and then he sends it to his mom as a gift because she loves birds, apparently, or something, I don't know. Sends her the bird for her birthday, doesn't hear back from her. And so a couple weeks goes by, still hasn't heard anything. So he's wondering, well, maybe she didn't get it. So he calls, hey, mom, did you get the gift? Um, yes, I did get it. Oh, good, such a relief. I'm glad that you got it. What was your favorite part? And she said, the thighs, they were delicious. <laughs> you see, there's this idea of like, like misinterpretation, right? Like, what, what, is this, what is this we're actually talking about? What is prayer? I'll tell you in a little bit what I think, just kind of what prayer is. But right now, I just want to give you kind of the big idea uh, of what I want to talk about from this invitational standpoint as we talk about prayer today. Um, this is what I want you to hear, right? Prayer recalibrates our compasses, okay? Prayer recalibrates our compasses. It resets our watches and to make sure that we're all moving towards the same thing. Okay, it resets our compasses. There's a direction component. It resets our watches, puts us on right timing, right? And it makes us moving towards the same thing uh, together. So in order to do that, as we think about like kind of the promises of God, right? And as there's this larger story at play here uh, that Jesus is, is entering into with this story. And so I just want us to look at a couple of different verses. Uh, and the first one is this. It's in Genesis chapter 4. We're kind of jumping forward here in the story. And we'll go backwards here in a second. Uh, but I want you just to, to look at this, right? So Adam and Eve, 
Um, So Adam knew his wife, Eve, and, and she bore him a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people, see, this is the key, he says, at at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, this is kind of like where prayer kind of enters into the story. All the way back in Genesis chapter 4. Well, like, what's the context for Genesis chapter 4, right? Like, because there's a lot of things happening in those verses, right? So if you go backwards a little bit to Genesis chapter 3, if you remember this, right? So sin has entered into the world. Adam and Eve, right? They've kind of created this no-no situation. Chaos enters into the world. And this is what God speaks kind of to the enemy, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what what's happening here is that this is kind of like what we would call the very first gospel, right? Because what's happening? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And what's Jesus going to do? Jesus is going to restore the brokenness of the world. So if you were to fast forward, right, back to chapter 4, we find that Seth, or excuse me, that, that Adam and Eve, they have a son, right? His name is Cain, right? And Cain, and then there's Abel, right? So if Adam and Eve are in this scenario where they're like, okay, so God, you've promised that you're going to bring an individual into the story that's going to fix humanity. And again, remember context, they only know the Garden of Eden. So my guess is, is that as they have kids, it would be natural to think, is this the person that God is going to use to restore the kingdom, to restore the world to the way it once was? Well, uh, you know, you obviously have Cain and Abel, and they, you have the very first church picnic, and which goes horribly awry, and Cain comes back with blood on his hands, and, uh, and the, the bad son exists, the good son is now gone. And so then, right, what happens is that Seth enters into the story, and it creates this whole new lineage. And so you would think then for chapter four, and then throughout the storyline, as each person comes into the story, what are you thinking? God, who is going to be the person that you are going to provide to make the story? story right, right? And that's where prayer ultimately starts in the Bible. They began to call upon the name of the Lord, right? Who are you really going to bring to fix this and to make this right? And so prayer is this. I think kind of the foundational element of prayer is this. Prayer is is first and foremost, it's, it's calling out to God to fulfill his promises, Prayer and promises are intimately tied together, right? And which really means it's gospel-centric because you go all the way back. It's this Genesis 3, Genesis 4. They call upon the name of the Lord. Who are you going to use to restore the kingdom? So if we were to come back, right, and if we were to look at this, you know, kind of biblical storyline, right? So you've got this moment of creation. God has obviously existed for all time, so he's that way. But here's us. You know, time moves in linear fashion, and it's going to go on, you know, for each, well, it's going to eventually end, but then there's eternity after, right? And so you think, like, okay, so you've got Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the world, right? And then who's God going to bring? Chapter 4, right? And from this point forward, what happens is that they pray. They ask, God, who are you going to bring? Who are you going to bring? Who are you going to bring? And eventually, who enters into the story? 
Jesus. So finally, the story is resolved in the sense this is who God is going to use. But then there's this time in history, right? And it's called the church. And it's the time that we live in now. And the reality is that you and I don't know how long. It's been 2,000 years for us since Jesus. And we have no clue when that is ultimately going to end. And it's going to bring us all the way, even in the story, even all the way over to, to Revelation chapter 22. And if you look at this story, if you look at this, here's what it says. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. So Jesus is exclaiming or proclaiming, I am coming back. And so what do the people, how, do they, how does the, the, the entire Bible end with prayer? Lord Jesus, come. Jesus, come. And so we've seen Jesus as the fulfillment and the very last prayer is, let's finalize this. Let's bookend it and let's be done with this story, right? Lord Jesus, come. So prayer is always linked to the gospel, right? How many of you guys um, have ever gone to a place, um, a mall is an easy example, where you enter in and you're totally lost and you have to go to the map? Has anybody ever done this? Okay. So the other week um, I went, um, because I needed to get some context stuff, and so I went to to the mall, which I don't go to very often, and I followed my GPS, and it said park, you know, here. So I, I parked, and then I walked into the mall, and I thought, well, gee, there's, there's no contact place anywhere near me. This is where it told me to park, and so I went to the map, and, and it took me forever, even on this massive map, to even find the little arrow with the little red dot that says, you are here, right? This is where you are. You, you are here. Um, and then, lo and behold, the context is like literally on the other end of the mall, right? But there's this there's reality, like for us, as we think about us in our own story, right? As we, come back to, as we come back to this, right? We don't know how long this lasts, but this is in some sense a blip on the radar of eternity. And when you look at the biblical story, Where we are, if we were to look at that map, this little dot right here, this is where we would say, you are here, right? This is where we're at in the story, which is kind of a humbling thing to think about, right? Because this is the story that God is ultimately unfolding, right? And we think about this, right? We think about prayer. Prayer is so important, right? Prayer is so necessary uh, to our lives. Why? Because, um, because our sinful nature, our self-centeredness is like gravity. So, right? So everything that is necessary for us does not come naturally to us, right? Like our sinfulness, our self-centeredness is constantly kind of caving in. It's constantly coming down into this inside. So when we think, about prayer, we think about this, we think about even this, the sense of Lord teach us to, to pray, what we're learning about prayer is this, is that prayer is incredibly necessary. It's incredibly necessary because it's helping us fight the depravity inside of our own heart. But, but just because it's necessary does not mean that it's natural. In fact, this is very unnatural for us. So when you look at Jesus, this is what's so interesting. So much of what Jesus does and what he teaches us needs to be taught. Why does it need to be taught? Because it's unnatural. It's unnatural to us because of our sinful self-centeredness, right? It's why it needs to be taught. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but this is the only instance in Scripture when the disciples come to Jesus and say, would you actually teach us something? It's the only time, 
right? So many times, other times, like um, Jesus will say, here's what I want you to do. Go and do this, blah, 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 blah. This is the only time a disciple comes to Jesus and says, hey, will you teach us that? Which begs the question, like, why? Like, so much of what Jesus did was just Jesus living in his rhythms and by natural consequence, his disciples, which means student or learner, this humble posture of somebody who says, I don't have all of the answers, which means that everybody in this room is a disciple, because none of us have the answers, who would then come to Jesus and say, gosh, I need to learn. I need to learn from you. I'm a student. I'm a learner of Jesus, right? And this is the only time, right? And it's so interesting to me that it revolves around prayer. Why is it that prayer is at the center of this? Because there's something so simple and important and necessary about prayer in the Christian faith that we would be drawn to Jesus in this way. It's at the end of every day. This is why Paul can later on in the New Testament say, like, pray without ceasing, right? Can you read the Bible without ceasing? No, but can you pray? Yes. There's something so important about prayer in the Christian walk from sun up to sundown that we need in our lives, and it takes this posture of the disciples to rightfully look at Jesus after done praying in a certain place to say, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Teach us to pray. And so what Jesus does is he builds it kind of on this, this, this big promises story, right? Calling on the promises of God. And then he's going to walk through. He's going to give two things. He's going to structure this prayer this way. He's going to talk about the priorities we have in our life. And then he's going to talk about the provision. He's going to talk about priorities and then the provision. Okay, so look at the very first, the very first thing. So Jesus now finally replies after all of the words to get there, right? Jesus said to them, when you pray, say something like this. He says, Father, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. Let's just stop there, right? Okay, so first word, Father. When you think of God, is Father the very first word that you go to? Sometimes I think that it is for me, but if I were to be honest, there are times in my life, and maybe it's certain days or certain hours, or maybe it's built on however I'm feeling at that moment, but oftentimes and sometimes um, the the, this idea of God in my life or in somebody's life is that, that God is a judge and that, ju- and that God is scrutinizing and he's looking and he's, just, and he's keeping record even though we know he doesn't keep a record of wrongs, right? right? He doesn't need to. He knows everything, um, right? And so, but there's this sense. And yet what Jesus talks about in this prayer, he's like, when you, when you come, your posture, right? Understand that this is first and foremost about a relationship. This is a family thing. This is a family thing, and he is the father, right? So in my life, um, one of my all-time favorite things right now in life is when my daughter sees me from across the room and runs and screams and runs to me and clings to me. And there's this moment of this, this deep, intense like relationship where she acknowledges me and I acknowledge her, even though we were apart, now we're together, and there's love and there's compassion. Now, as a father, is there discipline and is there sternness and challenges? Absolutely. But all of that is generated and motivated out of compassion and love. Absolutely. This is, the, this is the Father, right, that we're talking about in this, in this space. And this is how Jesus says to address, address God as Father. Notice the relationship, the family. God is, is super compassionate over you, and he is super capable. 
He's super compassionate over you, and he is capable in your life. As a father, right, this is how he comes uh, into this. And so I don't know about like you, but sometimes I think in prayer, like what happens is that the moment, because we know this conceptually, we're like, okay, God, God knows like all of my needs, and so he loves me, and he's compassionate. And so what we oftentimes do is that we jump right into that, that big bucket of needs, because needs are endless in today's world and in our lives, is it not? Our needs are endless in any given moment. There's all these needs that we have. And so like we know the moment that we think about God as compassionate, we jump right to the idea of him meeting those needs. And yet Jesus actually offers a prayer that's different than that. He offers instead this this reorientation and he, he uses a response to God first because he says, Father, and then he says, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Hallowed um, is not a word that we use very often, be- and that's a good new- it's a good word because, and it's a good thing we don't use it because it's a word holy, which means to be set apart. So if we were to overuse it, it might kind of lose some of its sense of power. Hallowed is to be made holy, which means to be set apart. So I want you just to imagine for a second all of your needs in your life right now, which are potentially endless. Okay, lots and lots of needs, and I want you just to imagine that there's a bucket in front of you that has all of those needs in it. And so when he, when Jesus is starting this prayer, he's talking about this response to God. It's like, okay, so we need to reorient ourselves in this prayer. How do I do this? It's like I need to sift through all of these needs until I find God's name. And when you find God's name, Yahweh, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. I want you to take it out, I want you to remove it and, and, and separate it from all of these needs because I don't want you to confuse this with all of this. This is God, this is who he is. He deserves to be holy and set apart, revered and honored. This is who we're talking to, right? And so there's this reminder, kind of like to sift it through and to set apart that and to remind yourself that that we're talking to Yahweh who has a much bigger plan in store than we could ever imagine, which is then when he goes to your kingdom come, right? Your kingdom come. So if we were to go back to to this story, Right? And if we say, okay, so here's the biblical storyline, you are here, we are here. Maybe we were to do that, maybe we were to add that we, that might be good, okay? We are here. But it's in this moment, as Jesus is inviting us and teaching us how to pray, he's, he's, he's inviting something into the space, right? Because what we see is this horizontal story, which, by the way, is very temporary outside of God's eternal nature, right? For us, there is a beginning and there will be an end, right, for those things. This is very temporary story that's filled with constant changes and constant needs. And what Jesus does is that he invites us to talk to the Father, which, by the way, he is unchanging in a very much changing world. So the one person you can rely on and turn to and have hope in is is the unchanging, right? And when you invite him into the story, you invite the eternal perspective, this vertical story into this horizontal world, right? And that's what we're doing. He's saying, your kingdom come. How many of you guys have heard of the phrase, um, just something about like when you ever have two cooks in the kitchen, right? You've heard this? Like what happens when you have two cooks in the kitchen, 
Right, they get in each other's way, right? I think that was Michelle Callan, because she knows. Darren, get out of the kitchen, okay? Um, so, like, whenever you have two cooks in the kitchen, right, they're, they're constantly competing for things, and it just, doesn't, it just doesn't work. I want you to think about this. Let's take it to the very next, like, that's a small thing. Take it to the next level. What happens when you have two kings in the same kingdom? It doesn't work. Because what Jesus is doing is he's inviting us who, for us, are primarily concerned with our kingdom. We know, greatest commandment, love God, love others. Is that in alignment with your kingdom come? Absolutely. But in reality, who do we really love? Ourselves. And so as Jesus says, your kingdom come, what he's doing is he's talking about kingdoms, he's talking about kings, and he's saying, guess what? There is a king who has a kingdom, and when he establishes his kingdom, he needs to remove the lesser kingdoms, right? He needs to remove the lesser kingdoms. And so really what we're talking about here is Jesus is inviting us into prayer. He's saying, when you think about prayer, and when you think about the character of God as Father, when you think about his name being holy, when you think about his kingdom coming, what we're talking about is that the greatest success in this world that we can ever pray for is the success of the gospel, the success of his kingdom and the gospel in this world. If we're honest, like how often does we come back and go, yeah, that's the filter for my prayers, right? Your kingdom come. And so when it comes to prayer, like when we think about this, because so oftentimes like we have our agenda, right? And this is true of myself. We have our agenda and then we, we acknowledge God's thing. But when we think about our timeline versus God's timeline, what we end up doing is that we, we sometimes can think that, gosh, like God, if you're compassionate and if you're loving, why don't you answer my prayers? Like why just, why will you not do this? I'm sure everybody in this room has, has asked that question before. Now, I'm not saying, I don't want to state this like blankly, like as a blank statement or as a blanket statement, but I do think that this, is, this can be true, is that it's not a presence of God's absence, okay? So it's not like God can actually remove himself from the story. In fact, that's totally opposite. God can't do that. This is not a problem of God being absent, okay? This is a problem of us actually being apathetic to what God wants, like, we have a hard time desiring that which God really ultimately wants, above all, above, above all things, is that we have this problem, right? And so what we're, what we're forced to wrestle with is this idea of God, right? God is not a genie. He's not a cosmic uh, vending machine that you can manipulate, and he's not a divine butler to bring you whatever it is that you want, Right? God is described as what? A father who is a king, who has a kingdom, who has a mission, and who invites his family into that mission. Do you see, do you see the way that it works? Right? Do you see the way Jesus is setting up the story? Now do you understand, I guess the, the simplest way that we could put this was when we think about prayers is this, put God first. It's the simplest thing. It's the simplest way to say this. You know, if you want to unlock prayer in your life, you know what you need to first unlock? You need to, un you need to unlock humility. Because it's not about you. It's about God and how he chooses to do those things and how he chooses to work in, in our lives. And so all of a sudden now we begin to see that these priorities are actually reshaping how you and I think about prayer. And when you and I do this, as we begin to think and see the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, transform our prayer lives, what it's doing is it's putting us in touch with the kingdom that God is building in the space that we're living. 
And I love that. It's putting us in touch with the kingdom that God is building in the space that we're living. Right? And so we go back to like, what is prayer? Prayer is calling on God, it's calling out to God to fulfill his promises, which started in Genesis 3, right? As sin enters into the world and goes all the way to Revelation 22, what we're doing is we're praying for Jesus to succeed in the world, in my life, but also in the lives of others in the world, right? And that's how that's all connected. Um, many, many years ago when I was in college, um, I was living in Chicago, and uh, my mom, um, and I was kind of like in, in, you know, like I was missing mom, <laughs> you know, like, and so my mom actually had to come up for a conference in, in Western Illinois, and, uh, and so I called her, and I said, hey, you're only going to be about an hour and a half away. Can I come visit you or come see you just for the night? And she said, absolutely. So she had, a, like, a conference, and then she had a meeting. She said, after that, let's grab a bite to eat. So I said, I'm going to get in my car, and I'm going to go down. But this is pre-cell pre phone. Um, like, it might have just come out, but it's definitely definitely pre-Google Maps. The fact that uh, the only thing that you had like, at your disposal was when you would go on the internet when it was really kind of barely functioning in, in its infancy stage. Uh, and then you would print out the directions and it's like a uh, like hundred steps, right? Do you remember this? Right? Those of you who are born after, you know, before or after 2000, you're like, what is, what is that? Um, here's, the, here's the thing that most people don't know about me before. Like, when I was younger, um, like, I was, I, I was a nervous driver. I hated that. I hated not knowing where I was going. I was always anxious when I was driving. And so that terrified me, getting in my car and driving an hour and a half with a list of 100 things. Because here's what happens, is that you follow, you get to step 10, and it says road closed. And you're like, I'm hosed. You know? And so what happened is on this, on this thing is like I start driving, I get on the interstate, I go south, I get on the tollway to go west. And I start driving out. And here's what my mom told me. She said, I'm in the Perkins or whatever it is by the clock tower. And I was like, a little, a little anxious, but okay, let's do this. So I get in my car and I drive and lo and behold, I see this massive clock tower. And I'm like, wow, that's got to be it, right? And so I pull off on the exit and I'd make the turn and I start on this side street and all of a sudden, the more I drive, the darker it gets. And I'm like, where am I going? And I pull around, and all of a sudden, I get to the spot, and I look up, and there's this massive clock tower. I'm like, uh, and I drive around the back, and all I see, the whole place is shut down minus one little spot with a sketchy van unloading something. And I was like, why is my mom here? <laughs> why in the world is she, like, I don't see a Perkins. I was like, is she okay? Like, I went, I was like, I was kind of starting to get really anxious and freaking out, right? And then after some time, I was like, okay, uh, chances are, this is not the right clock tower. And so I get in my car, and I keep driving, and lo and behold, city lights appear, a city emerges, and there's another clock tower, right? Uh, and I get there, and my mom is fine, okay? Here's the point, is that sometimes in life, I think that what we need is to alter our direction. We need to alter our direction, right? It's this realignment kind of a thing, but it's in the midst of that Guys, God, and here's why, this is how this is how it changes, guys. It's not just that God wants you to be this blind, obedient person. It's that God looks at you and says, I need you to alter your direction, but guess what? I understand and I'm compassionate over all that you're feeling. 
over all of your needs, whatever is going on in your life right now, I want you to know that I understand. And this is where the prayer shifts, right? Because he goes from priorities to provision. And here's what he says, right? He says, when you pray, give us each day our daily bread. And the story that we go back to is the story in the Old Testament where like God sends manna, which is like this fake bread or faux bread, if you would like, right? And so they're eating it up, but they only get enough for each day. And so there's this daily bread type of a thing. But that's not it. Like, can you just imagine for a moment living in a scenario where you had to depend on God every single day just for the food in your belly? There are people that do that, by the way. It's a hard thing, right? But then, but I also think in a much bigger way, look at Proverbs uh, chapter 30. You go back to the words of Agur. Here's what he says in verse 7. He says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? You see, like, we just live in this culture, right? This culture of filling and food and eating and not just physical food. We live in a culture of consumerism, and we are at sometimes at risk of consuming so much that we get to it, and we're like, oh, man, life is so good. Who's God? I don't need you. And we wouldn't say that intellectually, but that is in actuality the reality of how we're living life. Right? And that can become this thing for us. There's this fullness in our culture. What I also love about this is this daily bread in, in, in the Greek here, in the original language, it can also be translated tomorrow bread. I think that, that Jesus uses this word in its ambiguity to talk about daily bread, but also to point us to this idea of this kingdom alternative. You see, you and I live in a world, and what Jesus is like, gosh, like you're just filling yourself up on junk food, but when you taste the eternal storyline, when you taste the kingdom, that I'm building, guess what? Junk food, mm-mm, it doesn't satisfy. Like you thought that was steak, that's not steak. And it's like all of a sudden now we hunger and long for the things of tomorrow, this eternal bread. And he's like, pray for that. That's a provision that I can provide you. But then also there's this idea of forgiveness. He says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, right? Forgiveness is this core way in which we experience the shalom or the completeness, the wholeness of God is really through forgiveness. And I think that oftentimes, because for me, and I'm just going to speak to myself here, but I'm guessing that this is often true for many of us, is that we end up praying these prayers to silhouettes. And what I mean by that is that we pray these kind of, these, these blank pictures that encapsulate and accumulate all of the things in our lives. And it's like you come home, you could have the worst day of your life and come home and go, man, that was just really bad. God, forgive me. Great, thanks, and move on. And it's not that God doesn't understand, and it's not that God doesn't forgive. It's none of that. It's that you and I, by not being specific, we don't grasp the depth of God's mercy and grace as we think through it. I learned this uh, back when I was in seminary taking a counseling class. It's from a book uh, called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, uh, and he uses these seven things. I want to show these to you. Uh, Number one, Address everyone involved. How many of you, <laughs> when you do something wrong and you know that you hurt somebody, but it also hit, or hurt like five other people, how many of you go and talk to all six? <sighs> oh, that's hard. Um, next one, 
You can just leave these up. Avoid ifs, buts, and maybes. Uh, how many of you, um, when you, when you think about confessing something, you go, gosh, honey, I am so sorry that I did that, but if you wouldn't have, bad move. Just own it. Just own it. It's not a question of buts, ifs, or ands, right? Because then what you're doing is that you're repenting or asking for forgiveness while at the same time demanding something from somebody else. Next one, admit specifically. Don't speak so generally. Like when, when, you, when I go to my wife and if I say, gosh, I'm just sorry, that was a bad, that was wrong of me. But if I go and say, hey, Nikki, I'm sorry. When I said, duh, 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 that was wrong all of a sudden, the specific nature of that changes our interaction. The next one, acknowledge the hurt. Gosh, I can see how that really hurt you, and here's why, and here's how. The next one, accept the consequences. Number six, alter your behavior. And the last one, ask for forgiveness. You see, I think oftentimes like what we do is that we, we come to this idea of sin and forgiveness, and we jump straight to number seven. And that's not that that's bad. What I'm just saying is that the more specific you can be, the deeper that you can go with people and with God, the deeper your experiences of the gospel is going to be, right? And it's a beautiful thing as we think about that, right? And this last one is this, is the idea of freedom, is that under provision, right? He says, and lead us not into temptation. You see, uh, can God lead us wherever he wants to? Absolutely, he can lead us wherever he wants to, and he can lead us into some really challenging and difficult places. I think that what this is saying is that when God leads you, here's what you need to understand and know in your heart is how quick you are as an individual to sin. Know that wherever God leads you, that the chances are your your self-centeredness is going to gravitate back into inward and you're going to want to sin. So understand that about yourself as God leads. And so when you think about this whole story, you think about prayer this way, right? Like you can begin to realize that there's no shortage of needs, right? There's no shortage of needs in, in our lives. In fact, when we come down to this, right? So we, if we go up here and we say, we are here, right? Now, if you were to take your fingers like on your cell phone, and if you were to zoom in, like spread those fingers and to zoom in on that, what you might find is if we were to kind of draw this down here, is that we might find this, is that this is, this is my timeline, and so for each of us, right, we have a birth, and inevitably, we all know this, right, we each have a death. And so, for, but for in our lives, like what ends up happening is that we could, and you could go home and you could do this on your own, is that you could remember and look back at all those really big moments in your life when you had needs, really big, key, life-altering moments where you came to God and you're like, man, this is a huge need, and then there's lots of these times in life where we have these medium-sized needs, and we're like, wow, there's a, those are all over the place too, right? And it keeps going. And then what we realize is that inside of all of that are these little, tiny, little, minuscule things on daily basis where you go, man, those are needs that we have. And so I think what's so interesting when we treat prayer, we come to prayer, is that we look at this big God storyline and the success of the gospel, and in, in mind, we say, gosh, God, we want that to succeed. But when you zoom in on my story and you bring it down to this, but we're like, but God, you got to deal everything with my needs. This story can't interfere with this because here's all of the needs 
that I have. And for many of us, what ends up happening is because we don't know, like, like maybe, maybe this is where you are. If this is where we are as a church, go, this is where you are here. And I don't know where that is or where that piece in your story is and what the needs are in your life, but there are times where we've got a need that's way over here and we still haven't seen that met. And we can feel like the author in Psalm 13 who says, gosh, why have you hidden your face from me forever? Why? Why haven't you answered this prayer? And yet by the end of that psalm, in Psalm 13, what I love is that he says, I rejoice in the Lord. And I'm like, what happened in six verses that changed your mind? I think it could be this, is that we have this, this sense of like, when, God? When are you going to do that? And instead of saying when, what we learn to do is to say, we know that you will. It may not be right when I want, and it may not even be in this life. In fact, it might be way up here in eternity. And so it's not about when. We know that you will. And so all of a sudden, unlocking prayer is this idea of hope. We have this future outcome in front of us, but part of hope in our current situation is being content with the way that God is working right now. There's no shortage of needs in our life. In fact, I remember this moment in life, and, and maybe you remember the story when we first got our daughter Eden, and she was three months old, and we went to um, a, uh, a three-month check-in, and, and the doctors could not, like they had there some numbers wrong in her blood work, and so they went in, and it turned out to be like a two, three-day thing where we were in intensive care. They couldn't figure it out. She was, she was so hot that they had to bring in a, ten, a, a group of 10 just to keep her cool and, and calm, to keep her heart rate down, and for this guy, who just got a three-month-old daughter is staring at this from the side and I thought, what in the world is happening? And it reminded me of this, you know, like there was this interview that, uh, that somebody did with Mike Tyson a long time ago. Mike Tyson, just one of the world's greatest boxers and there was this guy that was planning uh, and making a plan for how to fight Mike, Toxin, Mike, Mike uh, Tyson in the ring and the interviewer came to Mike and said, what do you think about so-and-so's plan to fight you in the ring? And Mike's response was this, he said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And the idea, which is, which is true, but the thing that happens with us in prayer and in life is that we have this plan in front of us and then all of a sudden something happens and we are forced to come back to this moment where we say, you are here. But here's what I want you to note is that tucked between the tension of these two stories. You've got the biblical storyline on the top. This is what God is working to accomplish, and you've got your story right here filled with all of its needs. Here's what I want you to see is tucked between those two stories is this posture. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Teach us to, to, to think about Jesus and what he's doing in this world and in the midst of my own needs. You see, this is why I think it's couched in this, in this outline. Father, his kingdom, our needs. 
And it's this beautiful launching pad that, pad that Jesus invites us into, into our prayers. When we were in, in Israel, we visited this church and, and uh, these, these words, the Lord's Prayer, I think the Matthew version are written in 140 different languages throughout the church. And, and as you walk in, you hear all these groups repeating, uh, repeating the Lord's Prayer in their own language. And it's a beautiful moment to hear and to see how these words have spread through the large sea church across the world and across time. But if that's your only prayer, it loses its power because if it's rote memorization, you're missing the point. It's about Father, His kingdom, and our needs. And the combination of those things that Jesus invites us into is how we unlock the power of humility in our life and how we understand prayer. And your prayer can look like anything, but Jesus teaches us those pieces. As we think corporately, I want you to end with this. We can think corporately and think individually here. Corporately, uh, as a church, guys, you uh, and I together, this church is filled with sinful people who have a hard time distinguishing between our wants and our needs. That's always going to be the case. And any of those conflicts or any of those potential conflicts, though, fall to the side when we as a church collectively and corporately begin to pray like Jesus teaches us to pray. Because what is it do is it puts Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel at the front. And all of a sudden, it says that all of us are praying for the same thing, which creates unity. And it's beautiful. That's a church that's unified as a church that prays for that. But individually, I think about this, you know, I think about this, this again, this moment as I'm sitting with Brady in the, in the coffee shop and, and realizing that there's not a single moment in your life that couldn't or shouldn't be bathed in prayer. And so I just invite you into, into that posture, that posture of humility, something that's so incredibly necessary but doesn't come naturally that we need to be taught in. Because here's the deal, as we end, prayer recalibrates our compass, it's directional, and it resets our watches about timing. And it makes us move in the same direction together. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we finish this morning, as we wrap up this intro to prayer, And as we think over these next four weeks to follow, and as we get to look more into how does prayer practically get lived out in my life, and how do I address you, and next week we're going to look at how to be still in front of you as Darren brings the word. And Lord, we're just, as we come before you in this moment, Lord, I pray that that we would acknowledge the tension between these two stories that there is a biblical story, this long, big kingdom story that you're unfolding that's about the success of the gospel in the world. And yet, as you look at our story, you say that there is the possibility of success of the gospel in your own story. And so as we acknowledge the tension between those two, and as we demand to know when or what that will look like, Lord, I pray that you give us a posture of humility and that we would leave this place today as a student and as a learner and say, Lord, would you teach me how to pray? Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.